This is an awesome episode, everybody. I know a lot of you have written uh, talking about your frustrations, trying to uh, talk with family members and stuff that are uh, science deniers out there. And so it's really cool to get to hear the perspective from a scientist who is uh, working day in and day out <laughs> to do everything that she can to try to uh, save humanity from a pandemic <laughs> while, while dealing with people that are all of the sudden having the, the very first passing interest in science in their entire life, spending two minutes trying to validate whatever weird conspiracies of theirs and uh, getting angry about it and, uh, and wanting to uh, take it out on someone that has spent an entire career studying this very thing, getting ready and prepared for when something like this happen. And so it helps me to know that someone like this exists. It helps me to know that you, the listeners, are out there interested in hearing about this stuff because it makes me feel more sane. And I know from you guys sending me messages on social media and whatnot that it makes you feel more sane as well in a pretty crazy world. <laughs> and uh, uh, look, you, you, can't, you can't have a crazy beard like this on your face and pass too much judgment on anyone. So uh, this is a fun episode. We get to blow off a, a little bit of steam, talk about some of the frustrations, which I know many of you have um, with, at the same time, try not to be too judgmental about anyone. And so thank you for joining. Um, thank you to the Patreon saint who sponsored this episode, Neil Hoover of the Creative Businessman podcast. Check that out on YouTube or anywhere where you listen to podcasts and you guys are awesome here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast i am comedian and science enthusiast shane moss and i am so excited to have my return guest nina pfefferman one of my favorite guests of all time and especially related to the very important. I don't know if you guys have heard there's a pandemic uh, happening that we've been trying to navigate. And uh, and Nina, maybe I might let you introduce yourself. Nina, Nina has spent a entire career mathematically modeling um, pandemics and and from a, as a mathematician, as an evolutionary biologist, and was um, working mostly theoretically through much of her career until now. You're you're applied. <laughs> oh uh, God, I am. How how did I how did I do? Oh, thank you. That's an awesome introduction, with the exception that I think you've maybe set everyone's expectations too high. And now I'm going to fail to meet them. It's <laughs> Not true. But, uh, but yeah, so I'm a professor at University of Tennessee in, in both the departments of math and ecology and evolutionary biology, um, where I'm also uh, the associate director of our One Health Initiative uh, and the director of the Mathematical Modeling Consulting Center. So um, that's, my, that's my intro shtick. 
Um, amazing. And the last time we we talked, it was one very full beard ago. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really nice full beard, though. You're definitely going to think out either hipsters or Neanderthals, either one. <laughs> yeah, I've been getting Viking from uh, from time to time. I didn't even know I could grow a beard or, or at least one as lush as this. And so this is uh, we're all learning so much um, through through all of this. I have um, a, a bunch of questions for you. One, you know, I guess when we talked, I kind of, you know, uh, there was a, enough at the time sunk in for me to be like, okay, this is very serious. We're all going to hunker, uh, hunker down. Um, I'll check back in on this COVID thing in like early June or so, um, you know, people are going to mask and distance and like, it's going to take a little while for people to get used to. But for now, I'm mostly just going to focus on, um, a lot of the like psychology of like, Hey, why are people hoarding toilet paper and how are sleep patterns being disrupted at this time? And, and that, that sort of thing is, is the stuff that I thought was going to be, um, of interest. I, I kind of figured that within a few weeks of the time that I talked to you, that all of this stuff would just kind of be common knowledge amongst the uh, the public. We would know what we needed to know to let scientists continue to do their job as we await better treatments and potential vaccines. And that's not quite how the how the world has has gone. So, what has your life been like since we talked in March? Oh goodness. Um, kind of crazy. <laughs> so I imagine. I think, I think when we talked in March, I also had this sentiment, maybe not that everyone would know everything that they needed pretty quickly, but that... Just in terms of like, okay, we got some CDC guidelines, people will follow them for the most part, they're easy enough to follow, not everyone <laughs> needs to, uh, to get a PhD in virology to like get this stuff, we should be okay, at least in that regard. Right, or, or at very least that we should have been able to put protocols into place so that as new information came available, it didn't become uh, kind of a, a literally a, a marketplace bazaar of yelling random information and facts into, into a crowd and just be like, someone should know this. What, surely someone can use this information. <laughs> <laughs> Sloth's top speed is three miles an hour. <laughs> right. right. Um, I mean, and nor that is normally how science works. We just sort of yell for interesting information into the void and hope that if it's useful to someone, they'll find it. Um, but, but in March, I think I really still had a lot of faith that within a couple of months, at least the science end of, of policy. So no, certainly, I think by the time we talked already, it was clear that there wasn't federal political leadership on this, but it wasn't yeah. quite clear how much that was going to percolate down into the impacts to, to governmental science. Um, and so I think I still had hope at that time that, that there was going, that we were going to establish some good protocols as scientists so that just on COVID, not, not all science at large, but just on COVID as we gained understanding, because we're still right now 
in, oh God, it's August already. In August, we're still learning important new things in real time that are revising our old understandings and, and making new breakthroughs and things we, we had mm. no idea about before. Um, I, I thought we would have gotten at least a protocol by now for how to share that well and move forwards in a more coherent fashion to translate that into how to help people. And we're mm. still very much at the stage where um, I talked to an, a brilliant researcher yesterday where he's working on how to fix some of the problems we're still having with testing. Um, and he's, he's uh, working on sort of how to trade off rapidity of, and, and expense uh, against sensitivity and accuracy. And he's, mm. he's got really great, very promising work. And, and I asked him like, okay, so how are you trying to get this out? And his answer was, well, we have a website we're trying to get lots of crowdsourcing of enthusiasm for, and we're hoping to get a high profile article in a newspaper somewhere so that it catches the attention of politicians. And I was like, I mean, those wow. are all very good things, but that's not how we would have wanted flows of very good science. Like, I don't know scientists looking at that work right now who aren't going this. This is very good, important work. We should be thinking about this. But if our best chain of access to affecting anything as scientists is to go, Dan's work is awesome. Could someone look at that? It's wow. This is, hey, everybody, we're going to start a GoFundMe for COVID testing. So, so quite seriously, I mean, if, shameless plug, um, I think they have a website, rapidtest.org. Um, but, but it's, it's, that's an example. It's not the only, I, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to communicate of the last five months of my life has been that we've all been doing this weird, random piecemeal, everyone trying to help in the ways that we see that we think are either most important or most accessible for us based on our individual expertise to dig in and go, I can make this part better. And then when we actually get an answer, we go, now what? Mm -hmm. um, and that part's, that part's been, been even weirder for the past few months than I would have said mm -hmm. when we last talked. Have, have there been any benefits to doing science in these conditions? Because, it, it, I mean, one of the, um, uh, it, you know, science and the scientific method is one thing, and then academia and scientists as humans are another thing. And there's a there's a lot of say pressure to have a certain number number of publications or a certain number of of citations or whatever to to um, say eventually get tenure to maybe do the work that you really want to be doing or whatever. And, and within that, there's some imperfections of like trying to game the, okay, what's the most interesting title for the paper to get in this publication to get the, uh, so that I can rack up this number here. And it's, and it's not necessarily, it's actually impressive that science creeps toward progress um despite the the many flaws um within um some of the academic structures but do, does some of that go away when like okay brass tacks there's a pandemic we got to save lives well so i want to push back a little bit against the narrative that the the academic uh, game doesn't how dare help. you <laughs> correct anything that i well, say well, i think you're right i think you're right <laughs> 
I don't want to contradict, but I want to push back. I'm kidding. I guarantee I'm wrong about not just this, but a number of other things. Go on. So, no, so, so I think you're absolutely correct. Then there's a certain amount of, of gaming the academic system in terms of pre-tenure and publication citations. You're absolutely right. But I think the reason that we do that is actually that we don't have a better solution to an ends that is quite noble. So I think mm -hmm. the reason that we rely on things like publications and snooty journals and citations is that what we're doing is all of us are, are very specialized. By definition, if you're an academic researcher, you are a very specialized human. And I, I say that as kind of a renaissance modeler. So like I work in a zillion fields, I'm still very specialized in the expertise I bring to the table to work on those fields. Mm -hmm. um, so when, we, when we're trying to make the world better, if we're trying to make it better, with your example a minute ago of like, what's the maximum rate of a sloth? Um, like sometimes you need to know how fast a sloth can get out of the way. Uh, but mm -hmm. but uh, we're all, no matter how we're trying to make the world better, um, it is important to figure out which voices are doing things well and which voices are maybe not doing things as well. And so citations it's, are harder because citations can just be about who's interested in the problem. But publication and peer review is really, are you doing it well? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think when we try and do that, when we try and say, no, no, seriously, I'd like to try and get this published. I don't just want to shout it into the void. Um, what we're trying to do is say, someone else look at what I'm doing. Is it done well? Is it done okay? Have I done anything terribly badly? Uh, and then it becomes a conversation. And sometimes the answer is, well, it's good enough, but really you should also be doing these other things. And that becomes the next step. Um, and also then the next person to look at it doesn't have to start from scratch, especially if they're trying to build on it without from a different expertise to synergize across science to go, I don't know your field, but I see that paper's result and it looks really interesting and it might affect my field, but I'm not really competent to know, did you do it right? So mm. if you posted it to the web, um, I wouldn't know if you're the next brilliant person who had this perfect idea or the next crackpot going, I think that if we just mix alien stardust with, uh, with baking powder, that we can solve uh fusion like, yeah well, forget about fusion you found alien stardust <laughs> that's the that's the headline <laughs> what have you been holding out on us uh, i mean but clearly there are some crazy things that people yeah. put out there and and i'm not there's some actual things that sound crazy to me but are real science and if i am not an expert in the field like there are things in my field where see people say them and I'm like, that sounds insane, but I know it's true because I'm an expert. But then there are things where, where in other fields people say them and I'm like, wait, what? And then someone explains them to me. I go, oh, okay. Mm. Okay, I can see how that happens. I'm glad you explained it to me at the, at the level I can understand. I, I don't know enough to get down to this level. But it makes it very hard to differentiate which things are the crazy theories and which things are the actual science that just sounds crazy because sometimes the world's nuts. Um, if you don't have some kind of feedback that, that then itself gets credentialized and published. And so, so even though there is some gaming that can happen, and certainly it's, it can be dissatisfying in those moments when I'm not applied, in those moments when I'm just theorizing my own fun thoughts, um, it can be really frustrating to have the answer from important journals be, 
yeah, but who really cares about that question? You did the science mm-hmm. fine, but we're not that interested in that question. Go publish it somewhere less exciting. Um, that can be frustrating, but I think it's, but it's, it's like the Winston right, Churchill right, quote right. about democracy, right? It's, it's the worst system there is except for all the others. Um, we just don't, we haven't come up with a better system. And so I think actually your question about what's happening now during COVID is actually incredibly insightful because it's our, we're throwing that system out the window in aid of being able to have a more rapid response. But also what we're seeing is that it's really hard in that rapid mm. response to figure out which things are valid and which things are works in progress. And the answer right now is all of it is a work in progress, but some of those things you can rely on and build on and others have to be examined a little more carefully to go, did you did you do that right? I'm not sure you did that right. Um, and without that step of publication and peer review, it's harder. And so actually I, there was an a, 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 a email or movement or something that went around being like, maybe we can all just quickly read through and comment on, not as carefully as peer review, but um, read through and comment on things on, on Med Archive and just say, right. like, is it good? And I was like, you realize you're reinventing rapid peer review. Um, so, so what it's doing is just putting, is just flipping the order of first we publish it and then we get comments on it. But it makes, but it's made a lot of other things harder. It's made communicating to the public under policymakers which things are the things that science is now prepared to say, yes, we, we're pretty sure we know this. And it could still change. Even when science is pretty sure we know things, it can still change uh, because that's the nature of science is to improve on our understanding and to be flexible enough to go, oh, we were wrong. Sorry, better now. Um, but, but even that comes from when we, when we get to a stage where we're, we're pretty sure that we're right right now. Um, that's way, way, way down the line from, we have a thought, it could be right, let's tell everybody. Um, and right now, there's a huge mess of really good thoughts, really good thoughts that do need to be investigated. And sharing them is important and sharing them fast is important so that we can figure out which ones are the ones that turn out to be correct. And really good thoughts can turn out to be wrong and do all the time. And it doesn't make them bad thoughts or bad science. Hmm. It means that, that they were a really good thought that's not how the world is working right now. Um, so I think what we've done is, is trade off during COVID. What we've done is trade off which complexity we deal with. So under normal circumstances, we sacrifice not everyone hearing our thoughts until they're vetted. And it takes a long time and it's frustrating and it can be gamed a little bit to do things like get tenure. For the record, yeah. I will shout the glories of tenure from the rooftops to anyone who will listen. I think it's incredibly important because if nothing else, um, people talk all the time about academic freedom to disagree. Yes, but even more than that, it's academic freedom to depart from being able to justify your work well. So um, I, before I had tenure all the time, people were really very benevolently worried about me because I'm half a mathematician and half a biologist, but I'm not a 100% either. And and trying to, to turn around to my peers and go, I'm just as good at, at pushing the edge of knowledge as you are on, on just biology. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not as good as um, at biology as just a biologist. And I'm not as good at just math as just a mathematician. But I'm, I would argue I'm just as good as an interdisciplinary mm-hmm. researcher at mathematical biology. 
BetMGM welcomes you with a special offer on the NBA. Simply place a $10 money line wager on today's game. If either team hits a three-pointer, you'll win $200 in free bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. Just use bonus code CHAMPION200 when you make your bet. BetMGM is proud to be an authorized gaming partner of the NBA. And there's endless ways to make it rain with the king of sportsbooks. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use bonus code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if a three-pointer is made in today's game. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Make sure that, that some, if I didn't have tenure, I would have to worry constantly that the people who reevaluate whether or not to pay me know how to value interdisciplinary work. That's really hard to do. And so the minute I got tenure, I also started applying for like, my first grant in computer science. I didn't even really apply for it till I knew I would have a tenure decision before I heard about the grant because I was so scared of like, well, if I'm a mathematician and a biologist, oh my God, what if I'm also a computer scientist? How do I ever even tell anyone that? Um, and then I got that grant, and it was wonderful. And I, I had so much fun working in computer science on cybersecurity. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like that you have to have, like, like you're a closeted computer scientist. Uh, like, uh, you need tenure to be able to be like, also, guys, I've, also, I've been tinkering with computers. That's funny. Well, because because I think, I mean, and I, I, I love it. I love so much that I get to be and distracted by the next bright, shiny thing that I think the way I think about research can yeah. affect. I can, I, can, I can give good results, and I've published well now, like even by the, the measures of snootiness, like I've published well in computer science. But, but then having to justify why would we have Nina do this, as opposed to like Nina just gets to do this because Nina says so, because tenure mm. um, is really, it's, a, it's really freeing to not have to worry about whether or not better strictly disciplinary scientists can envision the same mm. things. Because um, once, once in maybe multiple generations, there are Leonardo da Vinci's who can be just as good in everything that they do as if they'd specialized. But most of us have to trade off between are we as good as specialists when we're generalists or are we really good generalists? Mm. And I think science, the ecosystem of making the world better needs both, needs someone to, to be excellent at the integration and to be excellent at the specialization. But it's really hard to go into a world and go, are there other interdisciplinary folks that are melding things together who can evaluate how well I'm melding things together, who could tell me if I'm doing it right? Mm. Um, and like, even honestly, one of the biggest frustrations in my career post-tenure as, as you were alluding to in, in publishing in journals, most of the snooty journals, there's sort of like, oh my God, truly interdisciplinary, the best journals on the planet. But if you're not doing the best, most interesting to everybody research on the planet, then the next snootiest tiers are disciplinary. There have you made progress in this quest, in this mm. field. And so even having like, where do I, who do I tell if I make good? Mm. So tenure is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Tenure is <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I guess I've won, not that I wasn't, I mean, 
I'm genuinely curious about the question either way because I've I've heard I I've heard you know I've heard I've heard some academics gripe about their their jobs just as much as I hear anyone else complain about you know any any you know j- just the same as when I used to do factory work and I'd hang out at the bar afterwards with some people and they'd and they'd share their grievances so anyway what what is uh what has your life been like since March what have, what have you been working on um so so almost everything I've been doing since March still has been COVID focused so yeah. um and and uh, it's been both frustrating and wonderful because I, I still feel I, I'd sort of assumed that that pretty quickly after after everyone started taking the pandemic seriously as a threat that we'd instantly make some sweeping decisions and then things could calm down and everything would go back to being a little bit more even paced. Um, but it's it's not. It really is still a little bit what caught fire on Wednesday. Um, so I've been working, um, so I did a, a lot of work actually uh, on a model of, of the impact of, of incarcerated people in jails across mm-hmm. the United States um, in COVID, both to look at, of course, um, how much of a threat to the lives of incarcerated people will COVID be, but also to understand what do having jails and prisons in our communities do to try to pub the public health efforts of trying to control coronavirus spread outside of the criminal justice system. So, what do you mean? Well, so right, really early on in, in the pandemic, we all realized, oh my God, nursing homes are a hotbed for transmission of vulnerable people. And if and schools are hotbeds for transmission for maybe less vulnerable we don't know less vulnerable or more vulnerable or equally vulnerable people for kids, uh, but but uh, we we sort of shut down all the play like sports arenas shut those down large mega churches don't let people count congregate we sort of tried our best to to get rid of all of these massive risks for for large scale transmission that we knew we couldn't control and would make life harder and more dangerous for the rest of us even if we weren't at the sporting event if there's a 60,000 person concert or, or sporting event, but there's going to be a lot of transmission. We expect that, oh my God, that's going to be uh, a major bump in transmission of the disease. And that's going to make it harder to control, even for the people who in the community who weren't at that sporting event. Mm-hmm. Jails are also kind of like that. If, if it, it, as we found out from, from working on it, if jails have this sort of perfect storm of they're overcrowded. The people there don't have easy access to good medical care. It's not easy to social distance. Good hygiene practices are difficult. That's sort of a hotbed of, oh my God, it's gonna be really hard to control transmission in jails. And then jails are also part of our communities. People come in and out of jails all the time um, because they're being arrested or they're being released because they they're either their time to be served is up, or they had a court appearance and they were released, or they bailed out. Um, there's a lot of, it's called churn, there's a lot of churn of, of communities affected directly by jail populations that aren't just the people incarcerated in the jails. And so not only do we have to worry about, oh my God, how do we keep people in jail safe? Because that's part of the legal promise that we make as a just society, that, that putting someone in a, in a jail is not putting their lives at risk. Um, but also, just as importantly, if not more so, un- try, just trying to understand having the jail system we have in the United States. In the United States, right, we have 
way greater proportion of our population incarcerated than any other Western developed country. Um, Number one. Yay! We took the the prize. Um, Fortunately, our jails are very safe, and we definitely protect the citizens in them. (laughs) I mean, so there are people trying. There are people really trying. uh, But it's really important to understand, or at least I thought, and, and my colleagues and I thought, it's really important also to understand what the impact of having our criminal justice system that we have in the United States, what is that going to do to our public health efforts, right? If we're shutting down sports arenas, but we're keeping jails, and we, we are, where there's no question, we're not getting rid of jails. I've had a lot of people communicate with to me that they think I'm crazy for suggesting that we abolish jails. I'm not. We are not getting rid of the jail system, but we that doesn't mean we don't have to understand what it's doing to our efforts to control COVID. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't, and, and so I've been, I worked a lot on what is it doing? And then are there steps that we can take that are still sort of within the bounds of, of our normal legal justice system to try and mitigate those risks to the community? Um, and so right. I worked a lot on that. Um, I also worked a lot uh, pretty quickly on models to try and see are there ways that that manufacturing companies and farming uh, and farms and infrastructure communities, um, sort of critical infrastructure, companies that we don't want to shut down because that that also puts people's lives at risk. Are there ways that they can restructure and deploy their workforce in order to limit spread in their their communities of workers? Um, I did a lot of modeling on that. I've also uh, worked a lot. Um, I, when we were still in, in a large portion of the country was was in phases of, of shutdown that disabled people to eat at restaurants. I also did a lot of work modeling um, what happens if instead of everyone trying to go very rarely to, to central points of sale grocery stores and restaurants then have to close because uh, even with stimulus, they're not doing enough business. But restaurants are also critical supply chain pro- providers through our farms. So a lot of farms supply restaurants, but not supermarkets, which meant that farms were also having to destroy food while people were also food limited. So I did a lot of work uh, looking at sort of what happens if we just redistribute points of sale? Can we do things like um, allow um, uh, SNAP benefits? Uh, if we just get restaurants to sell on food instead of prepare food and sell it, um, a lot of that's complicated for restaurants because, uh, for example, SNAP benefits um, aren't allowed to go frequently towards prepared foods. They, and mm. it's hard for restaurants to keep track of which things are prepared and which things are just, oh, I had a lettuce and now I've sold it to you. Um, so I did a lot of work trying to do – so that work, unfortunately – Fortunately or unfortunately, sort of became moot pretty quickly because we then allowed people back into dining in and restaurants, which is, for the record, epidemiologically not a great plan. Yeah. Um, but it's, but I'm sympathetic to the idea that economically, a lot of America's workforce is in food and service industries surrounding food provision. Letting those reopen is a really great idea. Um, my idea for it was, can we please just repurpose them as distributed and right, they all—they're all trained in food safety. So the idea that farms don't package for individual resale and don't have cold supply chains and all of these things—we had the infrastructure. We had—we to this day we have it. We didn't have to invent new 
like, oh, but how does the farm sell to Bob? Um, we have that infrastructure because that's how the farm had actually been feeding Bob all along. It was just the restaurant cooked the food for Bob. Mm-hmm. Now, so, so my, and, and at the time also, we were still quite worried that, that fomite transmission, that touching surfaces was going to be a much bigger transmission deal than it has turned out to be. And so mm-hmm. at that point, so everyone go to your supermarket once every two weeks and try and limit that was also a big problem for supermarkets of how do we keep supermarket employees safe when they have to see one fourteenth of the public served by the supermarket every day. Um, so I did a lot of work trying to say like, okay, well, if instead of everyone who goes to the supermarket goes once every two weeks and buys only the food that the supermarket knows how to receive, um, what happens if we just redistribute that so that you can buy some of your produce and meats and dairy at the restaurants that would have received them anyway, but now can't cook them for you. And the restaurants survive because they get to charge essentially for, for the repackaging and the farms survive because they're still supplying the same restaurants and the supermarkets survive because they're still selling what they used to sell anyway as their percentage of market share. So I was, I was working on these very distributed systems of how do you get the economy and the epidemiology to, to work in ways that don't mean we have to shut something down or lose something. Um, hmm. I was talking to a lot of restaurant owners, small business owners who were going, I'm really scared to accept federal assistance because if my if I can't reemploy eighty percent of my workforce when this comes due, and and that to, and I'm still not allowed to serve one hundred percent capacity of my restaurant, but I have to employ eighty percent of my workforce. This I'm not a viable business, so I'm scared to even accept the loans to get me through. So yeah. I was trying to come up with ways to. So so literally, it was sort of a, an, this interdisciplinary mess of like okay. Economics, epidemiology, food supply chain, farming, health uh, and uh, health and safety protocols. If, if, if everyone's got to know that you can't just repackage cheese and the same thing as raw chicken. Okay. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So I did a lot of work on that. Thankfully, at this point, it's, well, thankfully or unthankfully, it's it's kind of moot right now because again, restaurants are are back to functioning in ways. Well, that- for <laughs> right now, at this moment in t- August eighth, that we're talking. I mean, it, yeah. w- without without knowing nearly as much as you, I'll give you another thing to push back on. I would make a prediction that there's going to be a bunch of stuff shutting down uh, again and. Uh, fairly, fairly soon. Well, so there's a part of me that hopes so because we're clearly, we clearly don't have the pandemic under control. Right. And shutting things down a little bit more than than they are now would help with that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I believe anymore that we have the political will to do that. So I'm far more worried that what's going to happen is that because people get worried about transmission, Think small restaurants are no longer viable and therefore shut down because they're closing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd, I'd really like to have that not happen. Um, mm. But but it's hard to, and it, it, there are some great places. So when I was pushing this the most, um, I got some really great feedback from restaurants that were just doing it and had adopted it themselves as independent idea of like, we're doing that. And I was like, that's great. But the way that we actually keep society safe doing this is is not on a one-off case-by-case basis. It is things like mayors standing up and telling restaurants that, that they will get tax breaks or that the, that the cities will work with them. 
um, or or maybe some of the federal loan forgive uh, like loan forgiveness instead of it being we employ your workforces just never lay anyone off but you have to switch over to division to provision of food to some proportion of of your original um, output of, of mm. food provision the community um, and and so so I kind of hope that these ideas can still help but it's going to take political will and I don't as as with our yeah. previous conversation like I don't I, I had some great folks I was working with who were trying to get the word out um, with me, uh, but it's still it's in such flux that nobody is sure, and and even it's responsible small business owners as restaurateurs or or people doing local supply chain last point last uh, last mile deliveries were going well if I don't know what the regulations are going to be in a month it's I don't know if it's worth it to take my time away from my emergency tomorrow to plan for next month yet. If I don't know right. what next month is going to look like, hmm. um, so it's those kinds of those kinds of questions. So now that's way more detailed than you probably wanted, but but things like no. that. Right? Yeah, I, well, I'm wondering how long it, something takes to because I, I I mean I remember seeing the footage on the news of just all of the milk just going down the drain. I'm I, I'm I'm sure. A good number of people were familiar with this footage, and you, you look at something like this as and it's like. Oh my God! Well, there clearly has to be. Can't you give it away? Can't you do anything else rather than that? Um, and and so, how long does it take before you um, and 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 people that you're working with come up with some sort of a worthy solution to try? Uh, how long does it take from coming up with something that's like, hey, I, I know there's a like a, a, I know there's a lot of political disagreement about this and that but but look milk is going to down the drain how do we get this to people in, instead How, yeah it, it, and there's been great i mean there's been amazing efforts i've seen some really wonderful stories of humanitarians who are who are literally picking up food that was otherwise going to be destroyed or poured down the drain and taking it to food banks or distributing it through charities and that's awesome but i also right i'm a systems i'm a systems level modeler right so in my mind the, the fewer people lose their jobs and the fewer businesses close, the fewer people need food assistance from charity. So, so yes, it's wonderful. And, and as a stopgap, absolutely, any food that's going to be destroyed should be taken and given away. But if instead what we can do is simply shift how we think about sales, points of sales of food, so that mm -hmm. not fewer of those businesses along the way collapse, mm. then fewer people become food insecure. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so yeah. Hopefully, at some point, this just becomes easier. I, uh, I mean, meanwhile, the math is now there. Yay! Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I think some of the frustration for me is um, has been. I thought that we would be having these fantastic, sophisticated, nuanced conversations publicly um, about, okay, how do we, within these confines of knowing that there's this pandemic, knowing this virus, knowing that, okay, we're, we're going to use masks and distance and, and, uh, and, and follow CDC guidelines. And within that, we're going to do everything that we can to still have as robust of an economy as we can and it's a, isn't it a little bit hard and frustrating to still be having 
to to be trying to move on to that conversation while still having to convince people that say wearing a mask is well, potentially a good thing <laughs> yeah so so that's that's the last leg of what i've been doing that i didn't mention is i actually did get a federal grant to study the social dynamics in when people believe believe there is risk and when they are then willing to adopt measures to mitigate that risk mm -hmm. um and and uh so i've been i've been studying that a lot and the answer is as disheartening as as you think of, of we are we are able to sort of predict these dynamics of pushback of like well i i just want to open the store and then i don't want to wear a mask because i don't think anything bad is happening because it hasn't gotten here yet and then of course that's how it gets to here but then it becomes this very politicized right these the crazy i mean i i didn't follow whether or not it's since been verified, but right, the crazy st um, story that was reported initially that maybe the federal response got scaled back because it was originally thought to only be a problem in, in Democrat-led states um, mm. is insane. Yeah. Um, but because politi politics is like, of course, politics should, should serve its own if you if you believe that your political point of view is how the nation should function then it is noble to support trying to keep your point of view in power but if your point of view is i should stay in power because then the people who agree with me are safe then yeah. i lose all respect for that point of view if, if you're if your notion of leadership is that you are only the leader to the people who support you then, then we have utterly failed at the definition of a democracy. Right. Um, so, so yeah, if that was true, then that's ridiculous. But yeah, these, this, yeah. the idea that we politicized keeping ourselves safe, not just keeping other people safe, but keeping ourselves safe has now become a political statement is incredibly frustrating. Yeah. Um... Because I, I, I mean, I'm just kind of gearing up. I, I'm really going to need to learn a bit. But because, as much as you know, I'm I'm here in um, in medium size city, Wisconsin, and I would say that um, although maybe people aren't taking it as seriously as as they should, I would say that there's not it's not i don't see the kind of same level of denial um as maybe twitter or something would lead me to believe exists but certainly people aren't i would say aren't taking masks and distancing as seriously i i think it's like i, I went for a hike recently and i was like out uh, on like a cliff big open space i didn't have my my mask because i mm -hmm. was distancing from everybody and someone like comes up to make conversation they wanted to peek out so i like uh, made way and made space and then they're like want wanting to talk they even 
they even made, they're like, don't worry, I'll keep my distance or whatever. As they kept on walking closer and closer to, and I was literally like walking around a tree to like use oh. a tree to distance myself so that I wasn't being rude. And I did, and I didn't want to be like, Hey, can you please just back up? And I'm, but I'm clearly just backing away from them with every step that, and it's just, it's still taking people a, a very long time um, to yeah. get used to this. Well, it's so deeply rooted. Our, so our social norms and conventions around, around personal space and signaling interest and engagement, right? If you are worried about literally viral spread, um, how, we signal, how we signal supportive engagement with each other is to look directly at each other and talk directly at each other from a reasonably close space to each other. And so it is really ingrained that we're being quite rude if we, you know, sit in parallel and talk, there's a, right? There's a reason that there's a trope of like hard discussions while driving because then you have an excuse to have to keep looking forward instead of making eye contact because otherwise it's so rude not to. That yeah. if you have a, a conversation that's uncomfortable and you don't want to make eye contact, you need something to stare at instead because otherwise it's so rude. This is, it's the equivalent of that, of our society says that it's really rude to yell at each other from far away. You close the distance to signal that you're valuing the interaction. Right. So, I, yeah. So, so as, as difficult as this is, and as difficult as it is to, um, uh, to build these, build these new habits amongst the willing. And then, and then I, you know, I've talked with a lot of people like, um, my, my aunt um, was like, well, they they like shut everything. This is back in like June or something. They shut everything down and nothing happened. Cause it was, it's like, well, that's the whole, first off something did happen. It would have been incredible if nothing happened. <laughs> that would have been terrific. But, but what, what actually happened was I, I, I saw some, some projection that, that without, without distancing potentially there would have been millions of lives uh, i saw uh, I, I mean this is an estimation I mean, but there, but right so it's the point right. that flattening the curve actually was slowing things down and it did right but, but it is true we've 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 continued to i think even when we talked back in march we were failing at this but we're still failing at it we're still failing at communicating that the predictive models that guide these public health policies in an ideal world are self-defeating. Yeah. They're not they're not meant to to be validated by what then happens unless you fail to listen to them. And right. all of us holding them are making them in the hopes that we go, guys, if we don't do anything, this terrible it would be like uh, the, the analogy I used right. in a different conversation was if someone said to you, I've built a model and an asteroid is going to strike where you're standing in 10 minutes. Right. And then you didn't move out of the way. You would get hit by the asteroid and, the, and your model would be validated. But if you moved out of the way and the asteroid still struck where you were standing, if the prediction of the model was you will be hit in the head by an asteroid, the model has now been proven wrong. And the answer is, oh, right. thank God, that's what it was for. It was right. to tell you not what the model that says you're going to be at that by an asteroid if you stand there is to let you move yeah 
so so all, all of so even all of this with with uh you know I, I think that there's been a slight amount of progress made in terms of like um trump for example like wore the mask for the first time probably as a political to to target um protesters to try to make them uh the the bad ones in the situation and be like hey the virus is uh, but whatever let's I'll, i won't but i won't get bogged trump down clearly more like but, but masks masks protesting protesting in masks was a good like if you're gonna protest wearing a mask was a very good plan yeah this is i mean it it's it seems like that that was uh that was kind of proof of how well um the masks do work because it doesn't i mean it's still you still if you if you're wearing a mask it's my understanding you you still want to be distancing as much yeah. as possible you still do not want to be crowding into places for any reason if you can be avoiding it you still want to be distancing no yeah. no matter what um but uh, but uh, anyway, the the point is is I is I'm saying that I was relieved when the president was finally like, hey, put a mask on and saying things like this is going to get worse before. It was the first time that it wasn't like this is just going to magically disappear or whatever optimistic yeah. take. And I and I was encouraged by that. And I think that that some of the people that needed to hear it most maybe started taking some of it a little more seriously. I think unfortunately it had to take get uh, all of the sudden rural cases going up a little bit for some rural areas and, and places where, you know, I, I have a bunch of friends around Wisconsin and whatnot that I've been talking to that, you know, they go to work, they wear a mask and like everyone around them is ask like one of my friends works at a paint store. He he's wearing a mask, right? The, a, a guy comes in uh, recently who, who's just like, can you even believe this COVID hoax? I mean, my employee, uh, he's in the hospital right now on a ventilator. They tell him he has COVID. This made up hoax. They're like, whoa, when was the last time you talked? Oh. So this is like how far gone some people are going to be where you can actually yeah. know someone who's on a ventilator right at this moment and still be in denial that this is a thing. The reason I bring all of this frustration up is because we're really going to be in for it when it comes to actually a viable vaccine get getting people to convincing people to take a vaccine because because now as it might seem like i'm picking on trump supporters i have lots of new agey friends that oh, yeah. are anti-vaxxers and and look i my my last girlfriend was uh, uh, was um um, uh, uh, new agey. So let me tell you about the arguments that we had about whether or not microwaves are safe for radiation or whatever. Now, this, 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 this woman, uh, was very smart. She loved me. She respected me. Not only did she in, uh, did she have the tolerance to listen to me babbling about science nonstop, which if you're dating, that's just, that comes along with the package. Most people can't handle it. And get, not only could, did she have the tolerance to do it, she actually enjoyed it. She loved when I babbled about science. She loved learning new things. She would read science books herself. She was very open-minded and, and, three years of, of of me being like no can we just get a microwave and and 
and it didn't i of me like looking up the physics of like no this is microwaves is amazing like it's it's actually i remember the day i learned how microwaves worked and i was like oh yeah. my God. i know the difference between radiation and radio radioactivity and like i'm explaining i'm giving these lectures because i'm having to i'm having to reheat my coffee in a saucepan and now i'm getting yelled at because the sauce there's a dirty saucepan and uh, that i didn't like well i don't can we just get the microwave this would be and and three years of this and never never got a microwave so what what is the chance and i also lived through uh, i i'm 40 i also lived through the great seatbelt wars of of the 80s of, of it took years to what is now commonplace that most people now if you don't wear a seatbelt it's like you don't wear a seatbelt that's crazy this this is this is 30 years it, it took to get where we are now yep what happens when there's a pandemic we need to get this information through to people we and and you got and and this is not just a political thing you, you have you have plenty of people on the on the right and the left that are uh, uh, that are anti-vaxxers you have a lot of um uh incentive in in the um uh, supplement and uh natural you know like uh, well you gotta have the ginkgo biloba thing or that that's like uh, that you know that's and to peddle that you need a narrative that you know that traditional medicine is flawed in these number of ways and they're potentially in the pharmaceutical company and i am i'm i'm skeptical of pharmaceutical um companies and i'm a very pro science advocate and blah 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 so how in the world are we going to get what what do you need 70 80 percent of the population with like a very well, effective vaccine for anything approaching herd immunity uh, is that, that a, first well, off it, it, could you could you help me out with those numbers a little bit number one and then two how in the world are are you going to go about convincing that number yeah. of people Okay, so there's a lot. There's a lot in what you just said, and I yeah. I love all of it. Um, <laughs> the first thing I would love for us to do, and this is again not maybe not even about this pandemic, but moving forwards, is to is to collectively acknowledge because I think we've decoupled the narrative in an important way that is hurting us. Mm -hmm. All of that skepticism that people have about big pharma, right? That's not wrong. Yeah. The idea is that there is no such thing as any one tr completely trustworthy sector. But here's the part that I think we've lost. That's the reason that governments form oversight bureaucracy. And we tend to think of bureaucracies as necessarily bad, but regulatory agencies are formed to provide public scrutiny. The government is not separate from the public in this sense. The mm. government in that sense is forming agencies in response to public need as public entities, as the government to go in and go. When a, pharmaceutical, a private pharmaceutical company develops a vaccine, a therapy, a drug, when they develop that, 
is it actually beneficial? Is it doing what it says? Is it safe otherwise? So, so both efficacy and also lack of side effects that compromise its use. In, in which people is it effective and in which people might it be dangerous? When is it recommended? Those are all things that national regulatory agencies, that is literally the mission of the FDA. And so, so it's not, I think, uh, it's not by chance that we get upswings in problems from private sectors when we downscale regulation from right. agencies. So I think we lose when we say, well, how, well, you know, big pharma might be greedy. How do we protect the public? The answer is the public has an answer to this. It's literally government mm -hmm. to form public regulatory agencies to make sure the public is healthy. Yeah, um, this please. is some something that I have I I have trouble sometimes conveying to people. Maybe I'm just off in my logic of the, but but the for for the amount of of government corruption or whatever that that does exist and is and people need campaign contributions and blah blah blah. The actual like what I'm not saying what they're actually doing, but what the job of the government is supposed to be is to protect and serve the community and do the very things that you're, uh, yeah. that you're talking about and 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 to and to get rid of of the the kind of regulations that are meant to do those things and put that instead uh, in the hands of say corporations that have no uh, corporations are not built with the foundation of like hey you're supposed to protect a bunch of people they they are the foundation is you are supposed to maximize profit yeah and so i think that's what we lose in these conversations and this is this part is just natively political because it's about the belief of the role of government right. but if you're the sort of person who is worried about um about private industry and capitalism exploiting for greedy purposes a vulnerable public, then the answer should be the public should organ organize to regulate and provide oversight. And that is the definition of government. Mm -hmm. You may not like how the current government does it. And you may think that there may need to be more oversight of the current government, which is, by the way, still government. Right. Um, so that isn't a natively political statement. But pharmaceutical companies developing vaccines is not. Um, mm -hmm. That is not a political statement. How to regulate when, they're, when we deem them safe, unfortunately, is. But, but how to convince people when things are safe is much trickier, actually, even than science acceptance. Because in this case, it's actually competing narratives of, of potentially for-profit companies, right? Supplements and holistic medicine and... Um, uh, and there's all sorts of, of health-focused industry, some yeah. of which is very benevolent and some of which is not. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of medical research, some of which is benevolent and some of which is not. Um, right. And, and the, the, I would argue that it's not actually a good idea for individuals to make these calls on their own based on who sounds most compelling and trustworthy because we're, we as humans are bad at this, which is why we have a tendency to try and, and rely on expertise to tell us which things are safe and to become experts in safety. Mm -hmm. And then um, when, I, when I decide which things are safe, I'm not making that determination based on, you know, my, my I'm 41, my 41-year my history of not dying yet. 
Um, because talk about sampling bias. The first thing that kills me is going to kill me. Mm-hmm. And I won't be around to realize I shouldn't <laughs> have done that. Right. Um, and so hopefully the people around me would be like, oh, Nina's dead now. She shouldn't have done that. I won't do that either. But that's not how we want to build safety protocols. We don't want to wait for someone we actually know to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and so similarly with, with the arguments about masks and social distancing, your example of the guys coming in and saying, I know someone on a ventilator and I still don't believe it's about COVID. Um, that's, he's not out of the bounds of how humans make decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. What, he, what he's saying essentially is, I'm not an expert in this, um, and I trust the experts telling me that this is a hoax. So even though there is a guy on a ventilator, people have been on ventilators before COVID. Um, if, so, if an expert I trust tells me there's no COVID, okay. So, so I actually think the thing that we need to do is get trusted leadership on every level. Clearly, it's not going to be federal on down. It mm-hmm. needs to sort of give up on that hope right now. Yeah. Um, but, but it, but each community should look to trusted leaders. And then the thing that I think we can try and affect in each other is not to, is not to argue to convince because we don't, we even, even good science tells us that we're bad at convincing each other based on facts and, and evidence. And we're just, humans are bad at, at doing that. But what we can, I think, get better at doing is stopping what what we've been seeing at the moment, which is rejecting our leaders when our leaders no longer stick to the narrative we've started believing. Mm -hmm. So a leader that changes their minds at this point can start being rejected as a leader, as opposed to all of us acknowledging that literally changing our minds is how progress gets made. If we never allowed ourselves as communities to realize that there were better ways of doing things, we would all be hunting and gathering. Mm. So realizing that that not one, no one person's opinion, but one person's leadership based on distributed expertise is how good decisions and progress get made. And I do feel like, it, especially right now in the U.S., but potentially globally, we've lost that narrative. We've started saying our leaders are the ones who agree with us and will therefore be consistent in what we've always done and believed. Instead of our leaders are the people we trust to assemble voices of trusted expertise and then take in all of that information. And from the perspective that we all share, or at least that the majority of us share if we're in a democracy, and that's not everybody, right? Someone will... There are definitely times in the history of our democracy where our leadership has done things I find anathema and I still support because clearly the majority of people went, yes, that. And I can even find those decisions of questionable morality, but still think that that's what a democracy should do. If the majority, I can be like, wow, I firmly disagree with all of the people in the majority right now. But I am in the minority and I guess we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some things where that doesn't apply. There are, that's why there's international laws that say, you know, we have a Geneva Convention. If 90% of the population right now is all down for torture, we should still not torture people, even if 90% of the people are, are on board with that. Um, like those, those are some things where we've put in place that we don't want swings in public opinion to matter. Um, but I think the thing we could be trying to do is convince each other that good leadership is flexible when new information and new understanding comes about. And that instead of abandoning our leaders when new information comes about, if they adapt, what we should do is, is question our leaders. 
Why did you come to that conclusion? Is this information that I would also find compelling? Why did you trust that expert? Is that expert trustworthy only because they agree with me already? Or is that expert trustworthy because there's actual evidence or there's actual conversation going on? Um, and it's not the case that all points of view on facts are valid. All, all, all feelings are valid, but even if feelings, it's not always valid to act on your feeling. If you're, if you're hangry right now, if you, if you don't eat, if you skip lunch and you come home and you're angry at your, your significant other or your kid, and it's, it's literally because you're in a terrible mood and they didn't do anything, but they set you off and you yell at them. Your anger is valid. You yelling at them is not. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think we've managed to somehow conflate all opinions are, can be considered with all perspectives and actions are valid and therefore my beliefs should be my course of action. And if you disagree with me, I can, I can just ignore that. And if my leaders start disagreeing with me, then they're no longer my leaders. Mm. That entrenchment makes progress impossible. Mm. And, and so people who really disagree with each other, myself included, can have wonderful conversations where we, we're not arguing to convince, but we're arguing to better understand. I, I love arguing with people who disagree with me if they argue well, if it doesn't devolve into an ad hominem attack or an I, cause I said so, or you're disrespecting me if you disagree with me. Um, if instead what they're doing is explaining to me how the logic of their brains or the emotion of their hearts, because both are valid arguments, how they are arriving at their conclusion, how they're coming to this. And, and sometimes it can just be, my trusted leader told me so. Or sometimes it can be, you know, I have, I'm not religious, but I have friends who tell me, I know this because God spoke it to my heart. Mm-hmm. And while that's not going to be compelling for me, I can accept that it's compelling for them. And that's, that I can hear that and go, ah, okay, we're going to disagree on this because because that is a valid way for you to know that thing. It's not a valid way for me to know that thing. And my way of arriving at conclusions is not simply trust-based. It is. It includes trust, but it includes trust based on my evaluation of expertise. And God speaking to your heart doesn't qualify for me as your expertise, but it does qualify for you. Mm-hmm. And that can be okay. So I think... I think being able to have those conversations again about what constitutes trustworthy expertise allows us then also to be flexible in how we shift when we trust leadership Hmm. so that we don't just blindly follow leaders. We shouldn't, but we also don't just reject leaders when they disagree with us. And we don't just reject experts when they disagree with us. We ask how, how is your expertise formed? And maybe we can then reject, and right now there are, right? There are people calling both of us and rejecting science as a way of knowing things. And I can't say to them, you're wrong. I can say, I think you're wrong. And I have evidence from science that says that you're wrong. But if you're rejecting science, that's not going to convince you. Well, what, I mean, it's, it's a little bit hard with, with everyone being able to do their own research and, and, and not necessarily, um, it, I, I've been dealing a lot with, uh, so pr- probably the thing that I got the most messages about so far was I, I had a little highlight clip, um, where, um, 
uh, Jessica Brinkworth um, told me about, I, I actually didn't know about Andrew Wakefield. And, and so I had this little highlight clip, which was just uh, fantastic. And uh, I mean, I mean, it definitely got more positive um, uh, things than mm -hmm. anything else. But I, I had a lot of people that I, some clearly didn't even watch it because they were like, because I, I think it said um, something about the the origin of of the uh, autism and and uh, vaccine um, myth or oh. something like that, and and, yeah. and that and that was enough to like set enough people off that I, that they were they were like you need to get uh, you need to get people on from both sides of it or whatever. And I was like, do you like some people were like. Uh, like well you should get andrew wakefield uh, oh, uh, on to defend no. this uh, this guy who's who's um a uh uh he was a um a gastrologist uh who who did one study that when i looked into it funded by lawyers of of uh parents of children trying to sue vaccine companies he went to a children's birthday party, had a sample size of 12, because that was how many kids were at a child's birthday party, R ran, supposedly ran a yeah. study that wasn't an actual anything, and then wrote this paper. And and um, and I'm like, why would I need to... I, I would maybe, like... It, first off, what's a gastrologist have to do with children, autism, vaccines, infectious disease, or any uh, other? And but, but the answer is, it might be. There might be. There are hypotheses. But wrapping back to yeah. our, our very beginning of the conversation, a good hypothesis, a good, like, maybe this is what's happening, isn't always true. And so right. maybe there is good gastrology. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know of one, but maybe there's <laughs> Good gastrology, autism. We're, we're learning all sorts of things about feedback between the microbiome and of uh, the gut right, and the brain. Right. Who the hell knows? But but the point is, one person's opinion is not science. Right. The 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 building of expertise and and poking at things to say, well, where is this wrong and where was it limited and how do you interpret it well in ways that let us build on it? That's science. And everybody's opinion isn't everybody's opinion can be an opinion but not everybody's opinion can be an equally weighted fact and facts no. aren't dem democratic but it, it seems it seems like there's if i were to say you know there there's people that are kind of make a name for themselves as like like andrew wakefield's a good example since i'm already picking on him i'll just leave it at that um as as someone who then went to position themselves as like an academic whistleblower or something like that you know and, and so so then they actually get they end up getting more attention and say selling more books or whatever else than they would have um otherwise and so then someone looking to um find this link uh, ju just in the same way that there was a lot of like hey uh 5g towers started happening right around the same time this covid thing there's these two things i had never heard of before and they started around the same time so i see i see this link there um yep. uh, there, there's going to be people that are that are entering into google um side effects of wearing masks 
side effects of vaccines and then yeah. going to page 30 of their Google search to find something presented yeah. as a scientific publication and then being like, well, see, this is this scientist says you shouldn't trust science <laughs> scientists M much in the same way. Like, you know, if a dentist wants to tell me that I that I don't have to that that there's you don't need to brush your teeth there's going to be some motivated reasoning and some people out there being like see this even this one dentist says that we don't need to brush our teeth anymore and that one dentist that says that is going to sell a ton of books and is going to get a lot of attention and it's going yeah. to be really hard to dismiss so what you know yeah. what do we do so, so I, I do think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to my guns on the answer being that, that what we need to start having conversations about is, is how each of us interprets the notion of expertise mm -hmm. and, and then how do we rely on that? Because, it, because that one voice, that one crazy voice that agrees with me, if the answer is I searched for that one person who agreed with me already or who I like what they're saying, and I'm going to like it, act, there, I don't know a lot of people who, are, who would be willing to say out loud. That's my definition of an expert. The, the, the guy who agrees with me is my definition of an expert. Um, most of us instead, even if that's what we're doing, and we are all human, we all do, we all do that. We all hear, oh, that makes sense to me. I'm, that guy's probably smart. Um, and that's not, that's not the definition of expertise. But I think instead, if we, if we back up and ask what constitutes I got, when, when someone When someone laughs at my jokes, I'm usually like, well, that person gets it. <laughs> well, that person has a very good sense of humor. Uh, exactly. They would have to, to laugh at exactly. my jokes. <laughs> my friends have the very best taste of friends. <laughs> um, um, so, so we can believe that about taste in friends. Clearly, our friends are the most discerning of, of the friends uh, right. because they are friends with us. But, but most people don't believe that that's what they're doing about expertise. And I do think that that's somewhere where instead of feeling like we're challenging each other's conclusions, because that, that is very contentious. And people are really entrenched in what they believe is their conclusions. But I do think we can have civilized and productive conversations with each other about what constitutes each other's definitions of reliable expertise mm. and how are you arriving at this conclusion and based on whose whose opinion other than your gut um and and how do you find those people or how do you want your leaders to listen to those people and that's very different from one guy is saying is yelling this in a corner and some and that's not to dismiss whistleblowing whistleblowing is also valid the reason whistleblowing and not revolution is that it's when the whistleblower goes and tells other people and those other people go, oh, wow, yeah. So like in, in all of the cases that we, we respect about whistleblowing, the, the, the co-experts who didn't know about it, mm -hmm. well, oh, that's a problem. We're going to need to fix this now that we know about it. They know we don't expect the answer to be that's not a, we're, that's not happening. Like we've now looked, we're looking at it because you say that. And no, I once had a, an amazing conversation with a, a mother of an autistic child who called just a random number at the medical school where I was a professor and got me. And I am mm -hmm. not an expert in autism. I'm not. But all of us who work with the public at all about vaccines have had to read lots of papers on vaccine safety and 
autism theories and anti-vax movements because we get this all the time. So, so I wasn't a lay person, but I'm also not a vaccine researcher in the development and deployment of vaccines. I'm, I'm on the other side of what diseases can we prevent if only you had a vaccine? Mm-hmm. So she ended up talking to me and, and it was really enlightening for me because it was the first conversation I'd had of not a screaming, rabid, angry person about this. Someone who was legitimately trying to talk to a scientist and go, I'm trying to form, I'm an intelligent, well-educated person, but I'm not a virologist. And I have a child who's, who's being diagnosed somewhere on the autism spectrum. And I'm trying to figure out what I believe about all of this. And I went to the CDC website and there was this random paper about gut cilia and uptake of some adjuvant uh, that I don't know the name of and, and showing that that, 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 that the vaccine that was given for this specific disease didn't change the absorptive rate of this particular micronutrient in the gut lining of the, and she was like, I have no idea what this has to do with vaccines and autism. And I, I had to go, oh, right, okay. So from a scientist's perspective, the backstory is that we've had 20 years of looking for the link between vaccines and autism. And we started with the most obvious ones and couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. So then we went, but then people were still like, but, but what if it's something more subtle? So then we looked for the more subtle things and couldn't find anything. And now we're like 12 generations of hypotheses of good guesses of like, could it be this very remote link of causal things that could be doing anything bad that we're looking at that looks to an outside person like there's it has no relevance whatsoever but it is the cutting edge research on vaccine safety even when linked when when trying to link vaccines to autism Mm -hmm. because we haven't found any link to anything that's less crazy than that Mm -hmm. so it's not so even if we went with so even if this this information hadn't been fabricated if it had just been look statistic when we talk about scientific studies we have what's what's called a p-value it's a scientific cutoff it's a statistical cutoff for when we start to believe the study what it means is how often random chance would have given us this result even if our hypothesis was wrong Mm. And what, we, what we've done as a convention in science is accept that we should, we should think that our hypothesis is correct when it's not one out of 20 times. Hmm. When random chance could have shown us this data one out of 20 times, when our hypothesis was in fact not true, when the, the neutral, when the, 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 the null hypothesis is what it's called, when the null hypothesis is correct, but our data still shows us this thing that looks skewed, that doesn't look consistent with the null hypothesis, it looks consistent with our hypothesis, our scientific guess. And we've accepted a p-value cutoff of 0.05, which is one out of 20. Mm -hmm. So we've accepted that one out of 20 times for a valid scientific study, it's going to give us the wrong answer. And so we do what's called scientific replication. We do it over and over again, and then go, oh, well, if it's only one out of 20 times, then we can be wrong one out of 20 times. But if we do it twice, then, where we'll notice. And if we do it three times, we'll definitely notice. Um, but it, but so even if those original studies hadn't been completely falsified and fabricated, they could have just been great science that was that one out of 20 that was wrong. Mm-hmm. We've spent so much time and money tracking it down. It's, it's literally what people who want whistleblowers to come forward want to have happen. All of the scientific community went, shit, this could be a thing we should look for. And then we did, and we didn't find it. And now, unfortunately, because everyone went, 
whistleblowers tell the truth, mm -hmm. we, ha we have to keep looking for it in ways right. that we are all convinced, like, no, we don't have to keep looking. The fact that we haven't found it yet doesn't mean that he was right and we, we are failing to find it because it's that subtle. It means I mean, kids... Kids that haven't gotten a vaccine, clear, uh, surely there's kids that are autistic that exist oh, yeah. that were never vaccinated. Oh my I, god, yes. Of I, I, I imagine there's probably no variance in the rate of, uh, of autism between vaccinated and non-vaccinated um, uh, kids as well. So the answer is actually kind of, it's hard to, that's a hard thing to measure, yeah. it turns out. Um, partially because large-scale cohorts of unvaccinated children tend to be in areas that have less access to medical coverage mm. and unless you have unless you're very uh, severely impaired in your daily function being somewhere on the autism spectrum is hard right. to diagnose right right um so it, it's actually very difficult to, to figure that out but yes right. we, there's been lots of good studies at this point that have managed to do things like that and still not found associations mm. so no is is there so i know like the autism vaccine is there what what's what is the concern with an adult getting a vaccine which i i know that i know i know that vaccines do have side effects i i know that the measles vaccine has x number of kids a year have a negative react like a yeah. hundred out of a million or whatever have a have a um uh a, a a serious negative reaction and but i mean before the measles vaccine didn't basically every child on earth get the get the measles and then and a lot of them died of it and yeah. and so, and so you kind of weigh the pros and, so so i i actually have research i i have published a research paper quite literally looking at the risks of vaccine refusal right now in a modern era versus the risks of, of not having an available vaccine um, because everyone else having access to a vaccine and you refusing it for, for your kid or for yourself actually makes some diseases worse because there's age-based severity. Hmm. Um, so already there is a logical fallacy that, that the vaccine is more dangerous than the disease. The answer is, that's a luxury of a perspective we have because of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have the vaccine, we would have all baseline accepted some level of child death mm -hmm. from things like measles, which kills a non-trivial number of children it infects, but was just a fact of life before we were able to prevent measles from the vaccine. Such that now it's so rare for there to be widespread measles outbreaks that we are actually at the point where people go, oh, but some children can be made, it's rare, it's very rare for the record. Some children can be made sick by the measles vaccine, so maybe we shouldn't give it to them. And the answer is, mm -hmm. okay, but you realize that then they might get measles. And, and the answer yeah. is right now, there's so much discussion, there's public awareness of vaccines, there isn't public awareness of measles, thank God. So it's exactly like these models, they're self-defeating. Mm -hmm. The idea, of, I, I actually, I, I taught a course once that I love very much, um, where, where a couple of days of the course were just going through examples from old books and movies, where they discuss as a throwaway, it's not the focus of the book, it's not the focus of the movie, but they discuss as a throwaway, a, a fact of life that relied on having to take for granted 
how much death from infectious diseases existed before antibiotics and vaccines. Mm-hmm. And just going through all of the different pieces of literature and even early movies that just have these these throwaway lines or these subplots of, oh yeah, that character just died of that thing that we can totally prevent ever happening now. And everyone's like, oh yeah, death from that thing, that happens. And then you just keep going. Um, but but it's it's really um it's wonder it's a wonderful thing actually to look at yeah. the public and go, no one's scared of measles. But right. then we really have to remind people like are you realize that no one's scared of measles because no one gets measles because of vaccines. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, and, uh, oh, I was going to say, I mean, I, 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 am so happy you're indulging me in this conversation. It's also at the same time frustrating that I, that I necessarily need to be, I, I, I mean, I encourage people to be skeptical and to question every, I wish people had more skeptical attitudes generally toward most everything in life than they than they actually do but i i ha- you know it's it's it has been um slightly frustrating for me what i thought at the beginning of this was going to be like a terrific opportunity for people to like learn a bunch about science has turned into devolved into like this these non-stop arguments that i find myself in which is like i have i i have things that i would say are more important that we discuss on the on the podcast to the general public i would say i would say that re- that that something about like um, the Dunning-Kruger effect or motivated reasoning or confirmation bias or the illusion of explanatory depth are to the general public much more important and meaningful information for for them to have. So, so meaning like the high, the stakes are higher it, in a world where you just go like, oh, I'm just going to follow the CDC guidelines and I don't, that's uh, okay, good enough. Uh, but uh and and the and the science behind something like say confirmation bias is much shakier than it is with say immunology or 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 vaccine science or something but i never have to argue with someone uh, about like the cognitive bias research person that i had on the show or whatever but it when it comes to pandemics i guess like you just spend a lot of <laughs> this is my first pandemic so i i guess i'm just trying to get used to it but but apparently when it comes to pandemics you spend a lot of people a lot of time arguing with people about so, whether science works or not yeah well so i think people are are correctly in so so you're right there's a, a, a careful line between skepticism and rejectionism yeah. And so I'm going to sound like a broken record. I think responsible skepticism means that what you do is figure out how to rely on expertise. And if it's your own expertise or someone else's, but again, knowing what that is. So skepticism is not saying, I don't believe any of you people. Skepticism is saying, convince me. And convince me is about saying who and how can I be convinced? By whom and how? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like even the answer to skepticism is, this expert says so. You're not going to go be an immunologist. You're not going to go be a psychologist. You're not going to go be a physicist. You're not going to go be a geologist. You're not going to go be a theologian. 
Um, but but sometimes someone you trust enough and, and you, you look at their credentials, you look at their standing among their peers in that field and you go, okay, I'm like, I don't need, I don't need you to explain your reasoning to me. I'm just going to go, you said so, and you know this field and I don't, I would argue that can still be the result of skepticism. Mm -hmm. That skepticism is just not listening to anything blindly and that that's responsible. Mm -hmm. But not listening to something blindly doesn't mean you don't sometimes just listen. Mm -hmm. And that's really all about who and how, by whom and how can I be convinced? Mm -hmm. Well, so, do you have it? <laughs> I have now we're like at our time. Do you do you have a few extra minutes um, to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just like talking to you so much. I and I want to I want to actually um, talk about actual science <laughs> rather than not just making a case for believing science. My no, my but... listeners, are, my, my listeners are the last ones that need to be convinced. I, 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 I think that hopefully the benefit they're getting uh, out of this episode is, is one, I do have people write me all the time saying that that my podcast makes them feel sane in an insane world. Um, and so so that's and then also, you know, my my listeners have a lot of these same, uh, you know, we yeah, they 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 are doing a nice job of, of gathering some uh, some nice uh information and and some simple heuristics to a distance and mass and in in this and and they're having the same struggles that i'm having of having friends and family and stuff that they have to um talk with and and convince all the time so anyhow let's talk about actual uh actual science a little bit so one you mentioned way back at the beginning of this that um, what we know about COVID on surfaces has has changed over time. Mm -hmm. Could you give us yep. some updated information? Sure. So um, I think back when we spoke in March, it was still considered best practice to assume that, that COVID could live on surfaces and continue to infect people pretty actively. Um, and so touching surfaces was considered dangerous and, uh, and people were were being encouraged to, to act in some sense just as much safeguarding against surfaces as being near each other. Um, our thinking on that has evolved, not that it's impossible, so it's still best practice, wash your hands, um, if you're, uh, don't, don't touch random surfaces and then touch your face. I've been touching my face regularly forever. Um, but, uh, but me too. Well, but I've yeah. been pretty. I, I mean, I have been uh, about as quarantined as a as a person can be. So yeah, yeah. Who needs to ever leave their house? That's <laughs> um, but no. So so um, we were like at the at the time. Also, there was maybe if you want to be really safe, what you should do is leave surfaces to to have the virus sort of break down over time for days. Um, mm -hmm. We're no longer thinking that that's a thing. Um, it's still the case that we are worried that touching the vir an active virus and then putting it directly into your mucous membranes of your respiratory system could transmit the virus. We don't think it's happening frequently. If you're washing your hands uh, and, and if you're disinfecting high-touch surfaces in large areas uh, that are touched by many people, um, that should be good enough. Uh, don't don't 
place all your mail. Don't worry that packages need to sit for three days in case. Um, just, you know, um, the, and originally we were doing things like, oh, if you get takeout, instantly transfer it to other other uh, containers and then throw those con their initial containers out and then wash everything and disinfect the counter on which you did. And the, the answer is, it's not, we have not ruled it out as possible as a mode of transmission, but we do not think this is a frequent thing that's happening. If you are, if you are washing things reasonably normally and then washing your hands a lot more often than used to be normal, but should now be totally normal, then we think that that's, that's best practice right now. Mm. So no, don't worry so much. That's about wonderful. This is this is the sort of I I mean this is the sort of thing that that um that you are hoping with this with with science that you get to be not I I mean that that was taking a lot of precautions not knowing enough about it and and being as cautious as possible and then hopefully this is what we'll continue to do is slowly get some of our freedoms, but understand what is reasonable to be worried about and, um, and maybe be able to, um, uh, zero in on what, what the most important things are and not be stressing out over everything that, that we don't need to worry about. Yep. Yep. So, so again, please keep washing your hands because, it is still the, it is still definitely the case that if you're touching active virus, you can introduce it into your respiratory system with your hands to your face. So please keep washing. Now, is, is this does it is it is it like more of a nose picking thing? What exactly is happening? You touch your face. I've I've been quarantined for a long. I'm going to I touch mm -hmm. I touch this ridiculous. Look at this is the worst time <laughs> to have to look, look at this virus trap that I have on on my face. Pretty much. right yeah. right now. So I get COVID in this ridiculous. Look how big this mustache is. By the way, I haven't even that's, touched that's this wonderful wow <laughs> this thing is just it's so absurd and ridiculous ready um, to be a pirate. Uh, what's that <laughs> you're ready to be a pirate <laughs> yes so uh so i i get covid in my mustache and then i and then i'm uh, and then i'm breathing through my nose and i breathe it in that that's what we're yeah. worried about right we're, we're not worried about someone getting a piece of fruit from the grocery store, biting into a piece of fruit and COVID going into your stomach and getting it. We're not. So, so we are like, it's still advisable. It's always been advisable to, to rinse fruit. So mm. don't, there were people, there were, there were reports of people like, <laughs> Nina Pfefferman says, don't. I don't need to rinse my fruit. <laughs> it is always advisable to, to rinse produce. Yeah. It just, you're taking pesticides off of the surface, but you're also taking microbial communities off of the surface. Um, you, uh, but but yeah, don't don't go bleach your fruit. Don't wash your fruit with so with detergent. You will make yourself sick. Humans are not meant to eat detergent. Um, but but uh, we are not worried about you eating COVID. In fact, it, I wouldn't advise this. But but given what we know about COVID, you probably could drink something that has active COVID in it yeah. and it would be okay. The problem though, is if you happen to choke on, like if you happen to have a, an air glitch that causes you to cough from drinking, then oh, you- the wrong type. And that oh, would be very wow. bad. Oh, wow. 
So don't oh, I didn't it. even think about that. The nightmare of the wrong pipe situation. Right. That's how. You... Right. Oh. And, and do, like, we do this without thinking. We clear our throats as we're eating all the time. We sort of just go <laughs> and like that just to to clear our throats. And then I up. thought this. <laughs> I thought this conversation was going to it was going to make me feel better. Yeah, no, about life. Good. The next time I have a wrong pipe move, oh, I'm gonna no, worry. No, but the answer is you're fine. So, so my, my serious <laughs> advice about about fruit, and I actually I said this on a call with my family the other day. Which, by the way, microbial community sounds way too pleasant. Uh, oh, but microbial communities are amazing there are these <laughs> lovely coexisting different bacteria that <laughs> right. each other and growing but there's the whole ecosystems fantastic thing. absolutely biofilms bi microbial biofilms when there's enough bacterial growth that they start forming actual layers that are impermeable to certain like oh microbial communities are the bomb we should all like it they're wonderful <laughs> 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 okay, um, you you were saying your family. You don't want to eat them. So yeah, the, so it's tongue in cheek because I also don't expect my family to be snorting cocaine. But my advice was don't snort cocaine off unwashed fruit. <laughs> that's, like, that's, if you're quite, if you have to snort cocaine off of your fruit, rinse it first. Um, yeah. but, but like that's that's what we're worried about at this point. We really are worried about introducing COVID into the respiratory system. So the don't touch your face also is you know. Don't get live virus on your mustache because you're going to keep inhaling part of your mustache. And, and aren't aren't there more ACE two receptor uh, uh, receptors in the nose as as well that that are yeah. well, that are then, targets? Yeah. So so there are different densities of of the receptors that we think make you susceptible to catching COVID. Definitely in the respiratory system. Also, not for nothing in in tear ducts. Um, so that's also don't touch your face. Don't rub your eyes. Oh, that's. I'm fine with the not touching the eyes. Uh, if you're if you're washing your hands pretty yeah. regularly, then so like I'm most of my my days I am I see nobody other than my husband and I'm in my house unless I unless I'm so I do I wash my hands after I bring in the mail, but then honestly I'm not worried about touching my face right now. I will shamelessly mm. rub my eyes or like when I'm nervous I tend to chew my lip. I will, while yeah. working on math, absolutely be like, hmm, which is technically not a good thing to do. Um, but if I'm, but I, the virus is not coming in on surface. I, I'm not worried that if I had lunch and I didn't wash the outside of my banana when I peeled it, if I wash my hands afterwards, mm. I'm not worried. I'm no longer panicking about what am I introducing. Right. Um, but it is true that your nose, your mouth, your eyes, even your ears, but you have enough protection in your ears, they all drain into a system that connects to your respiratory system. Introducing live virus into that is not a great plan. Hmm. Um, but we're not, right now, we don't think touching surfaces is very dangerous. Yeah, because I, I mean, that's even, so I, I, know, I know germaphobes that are taking this very seriously. I mean, we're germaphobes before this are, ta are taking COVID exceptionally seriously and still just have uh, have a lot of misunderstandings uh, about uh, about, uh, the, you know, the uh, the the kind of 
disease avoidance heuristics that we've evolved uh, to uh, to understand contagion are are more of this broad sweeping like okay is it sweat is it blood let's just stay away from and so so even yeah. people that are taking this exceptionally seriously I, I feel like have some misunderstandings about like the oh. grocery stores and and the and the real and, the, and I think the real danger of that is not the germ it's it's the people that are then jumping to the logical like well, you got to go to the grocery store. So then if you're touching things any, well, it's, we might as well give up and not do anything because we're, we're you're going to get it anyway. And I think that's the real importance of getting the, the correct, accurate information yeah. out there for people. So even me saying we don't think it's fomite, we don't think it's particles on surfaces based, it's still a good recommendation. And I would still advocate if you're going food shopping, try not to pick up and put back a lot of stuff because we don't think that's how it's transmitting most of the time, but we haven't ruled out that it can, certainly it can transmit that way. You can touch a surface that has virus on it and then mush it into your nose or eyes and, and be exposed to coronavirus that way. So it's not hard to go, you know what, if I'm thinking about whether or not to buy this can of tomato paste, I don't have to pick it up while I think about it. I can stare at it while I think about it. And then if I'm going to buy it, I will pick it up. Um, like don't feel every melon that's mm. that's still even if it even if it only impacts one out of a thousand possible cases of transmission that could happen it's not a big sacrifice to go don't paw the produce first just go in and buy what you're going to get and it'll be fine um mm. that's not a terrible thing to tell people but it's also not the thing we should be panicking about mm -hmm. um, the thing we really like no, we shouldn't panic about anything. It, it, it's it's just that it will also just make people throw in the towel and not and not want to do anything. Right. You know, I've right. seen a lot of that. But it's a logical fallacy that just because something doesn't fix everything, we can't fix anything. I I've I've done that I've done that move before. Like, well, I had some drinks last night, so what's uh, now? What's the point of exercising today? And I right. uh, might as well throw a few cigarettes on there or whatever. Too. Uh, there there is that uh, there uh, that is that. I'm I'm very familiar with giving up, so I I I know where these people are coming from. That's <laughs> why so I, I want to address it. And uh, also, I mean, it's been a long haul, so it's hard to maintain, especially right now, even for those of us who, who embrace all of the science and all of the epidemiology, it does, even for me, I'm, I'm sitting here watching the news every day going like, why is there yet another like, news thing from another mayor being like, well, we can't prevent COVID, so just send all the kids back at, at full density to all the schools. It'll be, like, we can't do anything, so we're just going to see what happens. I'm like, why would I? Uh, I'm even trying. Uh, why am I, like... I... Um, you have to... Uh, I know. Uh, you have to be... Uh, Sturge's bike rally. A quarter of a million people are projected to gather. At, like, I've... Uh, the, yeah. These these are uh, I'm I'm going to paint with a broad brush here. This is a segment of population that is has a higher number of anti-mask, anti-distancing ish people <laughs> within it. From what I can understand, or the pictures that I see, and and I'm stereotyping based on the people that I that I know that are. I mean. 
part of the reason why Harleys are struggling right now is because they also have an aging demographic. So there's also, you're also talking about potentially a higher risk category of of, no. of people. Again, like, I'm not trying to be unfair to some, I'm just trying, yeah. you know. No, no, so I, I agree. The, the, the expression you saw on my face that looked like, oh, maybe not, is that I, actually, I disagree with the necessity of that perspective as the problem because we've also there are lots yeah. of reasons there are lots of reasons to undertake mixed strategies right yeah. it doesn't that there I, I i don't want to get political about it but but to bring up like the black lives matter protest that was a group of people who were doing risky things for covid and, but didn't reject the risk did not say i'm going to say that masks are not important and that COVID is not a risk. Yeah, that they were saying in terms of my priority of risk right. right now, we are also fighting so, for our lives yeah. because of this other. So they, it does m- much, much in the same way yeah. people people have economic um, constraints. Uh, yeah, uh, concerns. And priorities. So it doesn't even need to be that those risky things that people undertake that then cause all of us to be like, well, well then why are we even trying? Those, those can be consistent it's not inconsistent to take risks while trying to minimize risks that's life yeah, yeah. Taking risks while minimizing risks is life <sighs> you take risks that are worth it to you and not the risks that aren't and a lot of the 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 deep-seated just sorrow in my soul is when i disagree with people about ri- which risks are important that's true mm-hmm. but then also the thing that's really driving me crazy as a scientist and and maybe we can affect is this idea of well then all risks are going to be worth it to me because i can't prevent all risks and that's the one where i'm like like i was telling you about the restaurants we can make the economic risks so much lower while still mitigating the epidemic risks but we're not we're just going like well it's still going to be worse sales or worse economy so no and I'm like, yeah. dead people are also bad for the economy. Um, yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> this is this has been fun to be because this this is it's so funny. Like, if people, I hope people watch our episodes back to back. Like our first one, which was like, here's what everyone needs to know, and then and then this one of just like, oh god, it's been <laughs> a nightmare. Like four months of who would have thought we we would be arguing about all this. So, like one of the quotes that I saw from one of the Sturgis people uh, was that was that was like this person wasn't uh, anti-masser or a hoaxer or whatever he he was just saying like I know that there's risk but what am I gonna do stay cooped up for the rest of my life and it's like no this isn't the rest of your life this is a temporary challenge though that is making it that much longer the more that uh, that good people like you nina are having to spend the extra hours changing around all of the math that you have to do of like oh crap sturges ah i didn't factor in sturges ah well rework everything shoot i factored for reasonable people not maybe the dumbest party in human history 
history to uh-huh. happen. So, so uh, okay, let's. Uh, th- this is really, really important and interesting. Schools. At, I hope uh, so. Uh, model modeling prisons, where I imagine you can go like. Okay, how do we how do we do this? How do we keep them safe and distance inside of a prison? Maybe we can may, maybe when you uh, when you're fussing over whether or not a uh, non-violent drug offender gets probation or not, you just give them the probation under these extreme circumstances. That's possibly one solution that our math uh, now uh, what what what's happening with schools how do you mathematically like for example the middle school that i went to we had we had units and you had like basically these four classrooms and you'd move from classroom to classroom to classroom to go to social studies to math to uh and and then wherever i skipped to to, and then um but uh, uh, but if you're going to have schools and schools are going to be forced to do this it, it almost to me, what I've been saying is it becomes now. Now you're just if you're saying like we needs this is less about educating children and more about housing children during a pandemic, and it changes the conversation completely. So if you're like, how do we house children during? Yep. Then then it's like okay, everyone gets their desk and is in one place. Maybe you move the teachers around. So like I, I'm trying to picture how to do this in my. I I just can't imagine viable solutions that doesn't lead to just huge amounts of numbers taking off if, are are you having conversations with people or are there are there are there i don't know why i asked <laughs> are yeah. you having what i meant to say is when you have conversations about the school <laughs> reopening knowing that there's nothing you can do to stop some of these schools and there's probably well-meaning principals and teachers that would love to have access to the best information possible to under these constraints that they wish this wasn't happening what what's the best case scenario what can they do yeah so oh boy okay so as you said there are incredibly conflicting needs that society needs to serve right now um i i for me, because I am always sort of public health focused, um, my my goal, the thing I'm trying to optimize when I think about these things, is keeping people safe, healthy, and alive. Mm-hmm. Um, there are multiple ways to do that. Uh, people who lose access to, to jobs and, and financial income lose access to being safe and healthy and alive also. So, so trying to balance these risks um, includes things like making sure economies still function and includes things like housing children so parents can go to work. Um, so, so all of these things are trade-offs. None, nothing is a pure strategy. There's a very easy pure strategy for coronavirus, which is don't reopen schools. Yeah. That's, um, and there's, there's precedent in human societies for when things are bad enough that you just don't open schools, even at the expense of children learning. So I would never, I would never say that we should do this. We are not there right now, but um, during apartheid, um, fighting apartheid meant black people not sending their children to white-run schools in South Africa. That mm-hmm. helped, like, not buying into that system helped contribute to toppling apartheid, and it was important. But it did lead to 
giant gaps in the education of a whole generation of people, mm. of very smart, very noble people who potentially their whole lives suffered the detriment of not having those extra years of school. How, how many years was it? Oh God. So for, I, 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 I don't mean to put you on the spot. My argument to that, if I were to push back, would be, it, I'm just talking about this semester right yeah. now. I'm talking about a few months exactly. of, 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 of and, and not completely missing your, first off, like the idea of really needing an American history class when you are living in history, the amount of stuff that you could learn from this experience right now is incredible. And, 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 and then in conjunction with the ability to do re remote education, like yeah. how, how disadvantaged yeah. could kids possibly be? And, and that's why to me, the argument is uh, the, the conversation needs to be like, who needs childcare and, and how, and how do we, how do we help kids? Yeah. Cause there's also kids in troubled homes and everything yeah. too, that, that schools serve that. So, yeah. So, so, so Schools actually do serve, so it's not just academic learning also. It would be, I think, a mistake to, to ignore uh, social development that, that kids get by interacting with each other in school. I'm still a little bitter about my social development during school. So yeah, I mean, yeah. but we're the ones who are okay being completely isolated from society. So that's, <laughs> yes, that's true. An egg problem in that piece of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, but yeah, so schools don't just teach academic subjects. So yeah, when I brought up the, the, the multi-year gaps in, in the apartheid system, it was as an extreme example to say then certainly for the, for the temporary case we're talking about now, we could, we could accept that loss and it's over, we can overcome it. Um, yeah. But schools do also serve important societal needs of not only childcare, but also social development. So many schools are where low-income families get food security for lunches for their mm -hmm. kids. So a, a non-trivial number of calories out of a kid's diet can come from school-provided meals. Um, uh, so, so there are so many reasons. Um, and, and again, I mean, we don't like to talk about it, but kids in abusive homes having a place to go when, where they are just safe for a portion of the day. They um, might be the most abusive that, that they've ever been. Right and, and yeah, stress never makes abusive situations better and now is stressful. So there are lots of reasons why it is also important. So, so if we're talking just COVID prevention, no, yeah. everyone stay home. But we're talking about things that are way broader than just COVID prevention. We're talking about keeping people safe, healthy, and alive. And that's a mix of all of these things. Um, uh, there are still good things that we could be doing that we're not talking about. So for example, rotating cohort schedules of classes. So it's not easy. This is absolutely not easy. But um, we know that there's an incubation period of kids. If we had access to testing, so again, right now we don't. Testing is not the, the, end, the, like the, the answer to everything. Testing is the tool by which we can get some better answers. But we could, for example, one of the complexities of schools is that we know that kids are symptomatic less frequently when infected than adults which means that if kids are just as capable of catching and transmitting COVID, and we don't know that right now, that's a, there is some good evidence from a couple of, like there was a camp in Georgia that opened up and, and then all the kids tested, like not all, but a giant number of kids mm -hmm. tested 
So, um, so we, we don't have information on how likely kids are to catch and transfer the virus yet that's really nailed down. But we do have nailed down that we think that they are less likely to develop symptoms than adults, which means it's harder to know when kids are infected and transmitting disease to each other. So we need better tests for that. But we do know that there's still an incubation period. So what we could do, one, one possible scenario, is to do kind of a two weeks on, two weeks off cohort base, where two weeks of transmission is actually potentially not a huge amount because it takes seven, five to seven days to be able to start transmitting the virus. If, if kids behave like adults, this is all an mm. if, if kids behave like adults. So it might be that if we had good testing, what we could do is send kids, send half the school to school for two weeks then send them home for two weeks and do remote learning for two weeks while the other half of the school comes in and does in-person learning for two weeks. Hmm. Then before we switch, test everybody. Whomever wants to come back for in-person needs to test negative. That doesn't mean that there won't be cases, but it means that the cases that show up will be the ones who developed in being infectious in a detectable way after they started so we don't get the full two weeks of transmission. So we curtail like exponential growth, right? There's a little bit of growth, a little bit of growth, and then it starts taking off and it's terrible. What we would keep trying to do is cut it off when it's still low transmission before it gets terrible. Hmm. So keep, and then keep cycling through. And that allows parents at least two weeks on of kids go to, go to school normally and, and are taken care of and are, are outside the home and, and kids who need food security, at least two weeks out of every four, they have accessible meals in that way but we're still managing the epidemic risks reasonably well. Now notice, unfortunately, that strategy relies on being able to reliably test every school kid every two weeks. We can't do that right now. We can do some pool testing where we, we lump everyone together, like here, everyone spit in this cup and then we test the cup and then we try and, and then if the cup test positive, then you go and, and you see, so uh, everyone gets Q-tip at their nose or whatever. Uh, you, you stick 20, 20 of them in a test, uh, and you got a hundred different batches. One of these batches comes back and then you pull that out and test each Q-tip individually exactly. to see. Okay. Exactly. So we could try something like that. Um, even that we don't currently have the capacity to do for all the schools, but there are strategies like that, that we can consider. Um, it would also be great. I mean, this is pie in the sky. This is not, the next one is not going to happen. But we have a lot of unemployed people suddenly. It would be really wonderful if public works could employ people as simply trained, we would train them in COVID specific childcare and then open very small cohort. So like you and three other families or you and four other families have childcare for your kids with only the children of those other two or three families who are safeguarded by someone employed by the state at this point to make, and who, who understands how to help kids wear masks, how to help kids. And there, there's some age of kid where we're just not gonna be able to help. Like a five-year-old is not going to wear a mask in a way that's really helpful without a lot of help, without a lot of oversight, without a lot of nagging. They're, masks will slip down below their nose or they're going to pick their nose under their mask and then wipe it on the mask or do things five-year-olds yeah. do because they're five. Um, but we can, we can still try and provide even state-sponsored 
but also, I mean, if, if we wanted to do private, like private would require a lot more, a lot more hoops to jump through that I can think of because we'd have to find space. We'd have to find licensing. We'd have to find, like, we can't just hand kids to, to random people. There's a reason that we license teachers and childcare yeah. providers. Um, but, but things like, there's a whole bunch of sports arenas in, in various uh, places that are, that are currently not being used for random sporting events. It would be great to turn them into, into safely handled municipal childcare, where, again, you just have cohorts of just care, care for the kids. Um, and yeah. I mean, maybe I, we sacrifice learning for a semester. Yeah, I think you, I, I mean, I think that maybe I have, um, um, I mean, to me, education means a lot of different things. And I think that real life education and experience holds a lot of value. And I think that this is an incredible time for real life education. Like, I just think that that is like all of a sudden we're all learning about food supply chains and and everything. Like, it's such an opportunity for for learning and learning how to learn and reprogram. I don't know. So 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 to me, um, uh, like. Getting getting kids to ace the standardized tests this semester is way down the list on priorities. My middle so my middle school that I went to I think is about eight hundred kids two two hundred uh you know four grades two hundred a grade uh unit units broke up into a uh, hundred eight two units per grade and um and and so so you're you're talking about you know there there was like in a given classroom there'd be about twenty five kids and these like each of the thing so instead of rotating around different kids and different if you're just talking about housing kids is there a way to just be like well just try to keep like 25 kids together those 25 kids only hang out with those 25 kids and that's it you're not mixing uh, so that, the that's certainly better there's a there's a there are problems with that still um so for example uh toilet facilities really aren't built and like the architecture of schools is not built to be able to to do that in a way that those 25 kids don't use the same shared washroom mm -hmm. as four other classrooms of the other 25 kids mm -hmm. um and then you have problems of like well okay, okay everyone gets a jug uh, all right <laughs> right so i mean so there's the problem is there's logistical constraints for this um right. so i mean it's not only for elementary and middle schools and high schools. It's also, I mean, I've, I've been working with my university and other universities consulting with me. How, how do colleges reopen safely? Um, and, and those are, I mean, those are students who are old enough that we really could talk to them as adults. Um, but, but the infrastructure support is not there in the way that we would need it to be to truly eliminate risks. So now the question is, again, risk mitigation and trade-off versus reward. So it's all really complicated. There are things, as, as you say, anytime that you can isolate mixing so that it's not just the whole school in the auditorium or the whole fifth grade eating lunch in the cafeteria at the time that the fifth grade, like if, if instead it can be your classroom, that's better. But it's not, it doesn't get us all the way to good enough that we won't expect large scale outbreaks in the schools. And so that's also where, again, the trade-offs come in. Uh, from my perspective, yes, getting families back to functioning and people back to work without having to worry about childcare kind of misses the idea of as soon as an entire grade has to quarantine at home, 
then that's an emergency childcare situation as opposed to a planned childcare situation. Any time that you can give a family two weeks notice that they're going to need to find something to do with their kids while they're working, it's going, it may not be good, but it's going to be better than if you have to call them that night and say tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. you can't drop your kid off. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything that we do that supports better planning, even if it seems intrusive, right now we get, we're getting a lot of pushback of like, oh, we can't tell people that there's going to be this large scale. I'm like, of course we can. Summer, every single year, students stay home from school. And like, we figured, like, yes, we could outsource summer camp and we can take vacations then and we can do all sorts of things that, that figure out what else to do with the kids. But the answer is we figure out what else to do with the kids because parents don't stop working in summer. But kids stop going to school in summer every single year. And with enough warning and planning, we can figure this out. It's the emergence. It's, so, so for me, the frustrating thing about the conversation with schools is that we're, we're again doing this all or nothing thing that's going to force us into emergency circumstances that we're then going to handle badly and won't get rid of the constraint on parents that we're trying to alleviate. Hmm. Okay, so I need to let you go. I, I, I by the way, new system. Now that I'm no 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 longer like frantically figuring out how to rearrange my entire career, do things remotely, and everything else. Uh, open open door to you anytime you want to email me and come back on. I have uh, just let me know. I I don't want a whole another four and a half months or whatever uh, to to go by. As you're you're great to talk to. Um, I I want to talk about how other social organisms and insects and whatnot deal with this. I I want to I I want to evolutionary biology. We 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 haven't even talked about one of my favorite subjects. Um and and I I want to I want to talk about how what we can do to improve uh, improve testing, asymptomatic long-term risk, are people possibly getting covid a second time, antibodies, a zillion other things I want to talk about. One last thing that I think is especially relevant right now, summertime outdoors, what's the UV situation? How helpful is it? My my thinking at first when I saw Florida and Arizona and whatnot uh, uh, like spiking, I worried so because even though I knew it was a lot of like people neglecting policy, I was still hopeful that open air and sun would would be work. But then but then I thought, well, I lived in I lived in Texas for a couple of years. People are indoors in air conditioning in the heat of the summer. Is it the case in 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 your opinion that 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 maybe it was a little more to do with with being indoors and air conditioning and having the bars and stuff open than it was say like people out at at beaches and stuff? I I mean um- fingers I, I'm sure it was both, and I don't. And I'm not encouraging people to go to beaches, but but it would certainly, it would certainly be good news to know that we can that that we don't have to worry as much when we're outdoors. For those of us that are also taking precautions, and it would be good for us to know and to plan once people start heading indoors more in the fall in the winter, just how much of an impact this is uh, going to have. Yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, again, just to, I, I constantly disclaim this, but we're learning in real time. So these answers, the next time that we chat, I, I might revisit these and go, I was wrong. This is not true. Uh, our current understanding um, is that it's not, is that yes, UVC can, radiation from the sun 
can kill the virus, but um, that's not nearly so so protective for the outdoors versus indoors argument as simply the circulation of air. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say go to the beach because the sun will kill the virus. I would say you feel freer about being, if you have to congregate, certainly please safe social distance and mask. But if you have to choose between somewhere really well ventilated or in fact outside with a breeze or somewhere in close quarters where the air is staying and recirculating among people, that's really a big difference. That's really what we're seeing with bars and restaurants and closed venues of it's really how how much is the, the how many of the droplets and we think now maybe some aerosol last time i talked to you the end we thought no not aerosol we think maybe now maybe some aerosol <laughs> um, <laughs> no! but, but that's okay it's okay Good news bad news yeah um but uh what that does do is say yes outdoors is better if you have to if you have a case bike if you're going to stand exactly this far away from someone and you're both wearing masks and you have a choice between indoors and outdoors Yes, outdoor. Pick outdoors, um, and some. Yes, yeah, some of that is because yes, sunlight. Also, sunlight is tricky because how much radiation depends on the angle of the sun. So it changes the the dose per unit time changes by time of day and by time of year. In but also, humidity the, makes the droplets fall faster, right? Too as uh, well. So yeah, it's complicated because we also think that. Humidity has to do with how long droplets, the, the virus in the droplets survives. So everything is. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Every time I try to find a little bit of good news. Well, that's not true. I, I'm less worried about groceries than I was four months ago. And so there is good news, right? The good news yeah. is we are now, like when we were in March, we were guessing. When we said social distancing, we were like, it can't, we know it can help. We don't know how much. Now we're actually starting to be able to quantify the how much. The study you referenced before, of like if we hadn't been wearing masks and we hadn't shut down, here's how many more people. We're also getting models of, of that being like, well, here are some places that did no social distancing. Here are some places that, like, here's a church where one guy had it, and now 80 people have it from that church service. We're starting to really understand what these events look like that really cause spread. And the answer is people packed in close in ways that aren't well ventilated. We're really starting to isolate that. So that's wonderful news. If the answer is like, if you're missing humans, good. We now know how you can be with humans reasonably safely. Go out, go outside on a nice day, wear a mask. Don't take the mask off. Um, stay about six feet from each other. Grab, grab take a walk. Sit or grab um, a fold-out chair and go sit on your lawn six feet apart from each other. And that we, we now know that the answer to that is you're very unlikely to catch anything from each other if you do that and you can be together. Mm-hmm. That, that, in my mind, is potentially life-saving for people who need other people. We're, we, can, we now know how to let people do that safely. Right, before, right when we were in the middle of lockdown, we were like, see no one who's not in your immediate family unless you're an essential worker, and then God help us all. Mm-hmm. Right? And now we're at the stage, and then we, we were like, well, maybe you can double bubble. Right? They're like, you and, you, your family and another family, but then no one talked to anyone else. And now, now we're at the stage where we understand enough to go. There are safe and responsible ways for humans to interact in a broad society. It doesn't just have to be like that one person that we see. It can be... I haven't seen you in a while. Let's get together on Tuesday. 
and we'll both go outside and sit more than six feet apart and wear masks, but we can be together and it's fine. Even if one of you is in a high-risk category or one of you is caretaking for someone you're worried about, the, these are like, and nothing is zero risk. Nothing in the world is zero risk. But we now, that, to me, that's incredibly good news. We know how to be responsible without interfering, without interrupting. We, it's interfering. It is absolutely interfering. But without interrupting the fabric of society. Mm. That's fantastic news to me. Mm. Oh, wonderful. I, um, I, it's so, it's so nice to have you back. And, and so six feet, science, science nailed it. When, when you guessed back then that six feet, that, that's so, like, we're still on the six feet. So, so in a well-ventilated area, yes. And there, there's a reason. The reason was that that guess was an informed guess. Yeah. That guess came from droplet studies of having people cough in still air environments. It's not sneeze, sneeze, sneezing, honestly, way more than six feet. You don't want to be in the path of someone sneezed. Um, but the average cough propels, I think it's 80% of the droplets no more than six, the arcus is no more than six feet. Mm -hmm. So it's not completely protective, but in terms of what, how to expect to take care of yourself, especially if you're in a well-ventilated area and you're wearing a mask, masks also prevent the vast majority of droplets, which means that that six feet shouldn't actually come into play for most of the droplets coming out of someone wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. So the combined, so it, it's not any one thing was perfect. It's that the combination works well enough that we're confident to go, it's okay, go do this. Some mm. people will still get sick. It'll be very few. If everyone does this right, it will be very few. It is true. People are bad at estimating six feet. So if you want to think to yourself, am I cl too close to someone? Maybe in your head, do like eight to 10 feet because then you'll actually do six feet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I just have myself trained now. I just imagine like a, a flame, like a dragon flame or something like that coming out outside of my mouth or any, anyone, if I'm hiking or something, I just, I just imagine this cloud coming out of anyone moving towards me that, that I want to avoid. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a terrible way to imagine that. And of course, that gets even better if you're both wearing masks. And mm. it is true, masks are way better at protecting other people from you than you from other people. But if yeah. everyone is wearing a mask, then you are that someone else's other person. So great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, we, we, so we know that. We know that. Um, and again, so, so sunlight, not so much. Outdoor air, better. Hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you. This is the longest ever. Here we are podcast. Oh we set yes, we I'm, set a I'm new record. You. First off, you to edit it down. I'm trusting you to come. No. Oh, what do you mean? <laughs> I would it, 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 if if it wasn't rude of me to do so. I would I would uh, have you captive for another hour of of uh, conversation. I want to do this again really soon. You're terrific. I I can't believe that after. I'm sure working 90 hour weeks trying to save the world, you 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 spend uh, um, uh, over two hours helping um, inform my wonderful and curious listeners and uh, science enthusiast listeners so that they can help 
better inform people that will also help better inform people. So you're doing such amazing work. You're my hero, Nina. Thank you so much for joining me. And um, is is there any other is there any like other like resources that you want to share or plug um, for people in terms of any, anything like if someone has a restaurant, for example, um, and 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 wants to uh, no i'm i'm saying is there yeah, are, no, are there any they, guidelines or places in place where like restaurant owners looking to see how they can oh, uh, do things in the safest um, best way that they can like any resources or anything like that yeah so honestly so right now i have i've written up a both an academic paper and a, just a lay audience recommendation for restaurants if they want to if they want to do this um please have them contact me i can also i can put it on my website um, yeah, what, I'll I'll put them in uh, in the comments and description and, and awesome. stuff of the episode too. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but for that, to be honest, what we really need is is sort of uniform adoption. Um, mm. It's it isn't it isn't a one off. Hopefully, it'll help every restaurant that would would do it, and that's great. And and every farm that they buy from. And so yes, each individual restaurant. If you hear this and you think it's a good idea, please do it. But also, if you wouldn't mind. There are restaurant associations and there are advocacy groups and, and even just talking to your local politicians um, or your health inspector. If your health inspector comes through and you want to mention maybe this is a good plan for everybody and can they, can like we can grassroots this. Um, so so and I this is where I don't know. So I can I can learn really quickly about food supply chains and I can do the math and I can talk to restaurant owners and I have been. But I don't know how to get the grassroots campaign started in the restaurant owners to get this to be more than I'm just going to try and help my restaurant. Um, yeah. And I think I think also that'll help all the restaurants also because the consumer base, the people who come to the restaurants normally, if we get it more in the minds of just all of us, then maybe what we should do is call our local restaurant and ask, can I when I pick up my takeout order for dinner on Tuesday, do you think I can also buy my groceries for Wednesday? Um, right now, it may not occur to, to the, the customers to ask that, and it may not occur to them to, to provide it. And so if we just grassroots this, it would be awesome. But yes, I'll, I'll send you the write-up, um, at least the, the overview one. I think the, the academic papers, I've been posting all of my academic work that I've talked about, it's all on MedArchive. I'm part of that problem. I've been preempting um, peer review and sticking all of my research on public archives. So if you go to MedArchive and, and search just for my last name, Pfefferman, um, at least four of the papers I've, I've been working on, the research I've been working on the last three, four months are up there. There are two more that aren't. Uh, one, because the journal that I submitted it to doesn't, won't let you have it be public before they publish it, but they've also taken five months to review it. So we'll see. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, they're going to get a very angry email from me they're trying Nina, they're trying their behalf. best they're trying <laughs> their best um but also seriously if it's okay to, to plug things part yeah. of what i'm still trying to do and i just i am exhausted and i am kind of at capacity but i'm also not the the only person seeing problems so if your listeners i have identified problems where they think systems modeling would help and they don't know when academic to go to and say can someone model this problem and get an answer for us reach out to me. I might not be the person to do it, but I might know who is. We're all, all of us in academia and in research and all of my collaborators at, at public health agencies, we are all still trying to help all the time. And we don't always know where to help. So if there are places that you guys see, 
Uh, and Shane, you interview scientists all the time, and you have brilliant thoughts of your own also of how to put this all together. If there are gaps you see that aren't being addressed and should be researched, please tell us. I will. I absolutely will. Well, thank you so much, Nina, for joining me. And, uh, and thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. And uh, send me any questions that you might have. Hope you enjoyed the show, everybody. If you did, make sure and comment. Uh, if you have questions of your own, I promise you I'll do my best to try to get to them. I'll, I'll keep on trying to take all of your suggestions that people have been sending me on Patreon and the new Discord channel available through Patreon where we have quite a budding little community growing. This has been all sorts of fun putting that together. On the next episode, Herman Ponser is joining me. Do you remember that name by chance? Any of you hardcores? I have the feeling if you're a hardcore listener, it might sound a little familiar because Herman Ponser is one of my favorite guests that I've ever had on the show. Uh, it might ring a bell. He talked a lot about the evolution of, of uh, human, um, uh, uh, why we stand upright, uh, human um, uh, uh, metabolism and uh, how how we use and expedite energy, how we cool off, why we sweat. Super cool first episode when I had him on a couple of years ago. If you want to go back through um, your app and listen, and a really awesome episode that we recorded in May of this year. So hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks again for all the wonderful comments, um, too, that I've been getting about episode 300 of the Here We Are podcast, where I talked a little bit about the show itself. I hope it brought a little context for you and what some of my mission is all about with this show, and thank you for joining me on it. If you want to do more to support you got the money on Patreon and want to join a cool community, that's terrific. But there's a lot of free things that you can do, like leaving reviews on iTunes, leaving comments here, thumbs up there, following me on Instagram. It's a ton of free ways to support the artists that you like. So uh, so go and check it out. Not just me, but all, all the artists that you want to support. There's a bunch of ways of just spending a few minutes that really makes a big impact and make sure that other people in the world see the things that you're into so you live in a world full of people that have more of your correct sensibilities if you're listening and watching to the uh, this show um so yeah you guys are awesome those of you that watch all the way to the end you are of course my favorites